Hi, everyone. My name is Steve Schwartz. I run the LSAT blog, and I also host the LSAT Unplugged YouTube channel and podcast, and I've been teaching the LSAT for about 15 years now. And today, I'm being joined by my friend Dave Hall of Velocity LSAT. Dave, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dave Hall of Velocity LSAT. Awesome. Very concise. I love it. <laughs> All right, great. So I thought we could dive in and just have a casual chat discussing some of the most commonly asked questions around LSAT prep. Dave, you game? Yeah, sounds good, man. Let's do it. Awesome. So common question I get is, when should students take the LSAT? A lot of varying answers on this. I'm not sure there's a right answer on this, but Dave, what do you typically tell folks on this one? Oh, I, uh, there's a right answer, man. You take the LSAT when you're ready. Um, everything else just has to be servant to that. So is there some slight uh, benefit to taking the LSAT at one time of the year more than another? Maybe, but any particular benefit of any particular test administration will be absolutely minuscule compared to the enormous benefit of taking the test when you are able to maximize your score. I love that so, answer. Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, I've thought about this a lot, you know, and and what happens is I think, you know, there's so much pressure around this test that people want to do everything right. And what really, really matters is that you do one thing right, and that is get ready for the test. And all the little stuff, this, the, the penumbra of little considerations all around test day, those should be subservient to your understanding and um, succeeding at the actual test material. Very well said. I love it. I get a lot of students asking sophomore year, junior year, senior year, spring, fall, undisclosed tests are harder. Should one avoid those? And I agree with you. It's all what matters in the end really is the score you get, what that number is. And any slight disadvantage from applying slightly later is typically outweighed significantly by getting even just a point or two more on the LSAT. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I normally tell people that an early application is worth maybe a point and a half of LSAT score, maybe. Um, you know, it's hard to quantify it that much, but, but the way that I conceptualize it is if you can apply early in the cycle, I guess we should back up for people who don't know at all what we're talking about. Uh, the admission cycle usually begins in the fall. Um, most schools start looking at applications uh, after uh, Thanksgiving. And, um, the, and most schools employ a rolling admissions basis. So if you want to start school in the fall of 2021, you, you, know, you will give yourself every benefit if you can put forth the best possible application you can put forth in the fall of 2020, a full year before you want to start. So that way you're early in the admissions process. And uh, I mentioned rolling admissions. And what that means is that, you know, schools will begin admitting, sending out acceptance letters to students before the uh, final date that they accept applications. So as you can imagine, if you're there early in the process, you are competing against fewer people for more available spots, and that is an advantage. But schools have been doing this for a long time. They know how many spots they have to fill. They know pretty well how many applicants they're going to get. And uh, 
So while there is an honest real advantage to being early in the cycle, uh, it's small. Uh, and it would be easily outweighed, in my opinion, if you could uh, if you could apply later and score even two points better on the LSAT. Does that jive with your understanding, Steve? It certainly does. And one thing I want to make sure we mention as well is the scholarship money associated yeah. with getting just a point or two more. It could yeah. lead to thousands or even tens of thousands of dollars in scholarship money, plus getting into a better law school just to tie that into return on investment. I mean, over the course of your entire career, I think getting a couple points more, even if it means delaying your LSAT test date and application just a little bit, it's well worth it. Totally. Totally. By the way, I don't know if you could hear that, but um, my dogs are sleeping. You can maybe barely see them. You can see their butts. Oh, I see. Now, I, I, is, funny, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> uh, well, now I've drawn attention to it. And one of them is a loud, noisy snorer. So you may hear some of that. Oh, I actually didn't hear anything, but I uh, oh, <laughs> have to invest in some better headphones then. <laughs> so we talked about when to take it and the fact that there really is no right answer in terms of a month. But what about how long? someone should study for? What do you typically tell folks on that? So um, I don't know if it's by design or like, I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg, but um, it seems that a semester is about the right time frame for learning a subject. And I don't know if that's because, uh, you know, somewhere along the way we figured out that three or four months is a good time frame for learning something new, or if we've just done it that way in the U.S. for so long that that's what we're used to. But for most people, I find that that kind of time frame, three to four months, is about the right amount of time to spend preparing for the LSAT. Um, there are people who spend a lot longer than that. There are a very few people who can spend significantly less than that. I don't know how many of those there are, you know, uh, there are people who try to prepare with, you know, with only a month and most of the time that's not enough time. And the reason is that you're going to be learning something new. It's like learning a new language. Uh, you know, there's a little bit of sort of mathematics involved in the logic. There's a, a whole lot of testing language involved. Like, you know, the, the uh, modes of expression that the test writers use, both in the way they ask questions and the kind of answer choices that they reward, uh, is something that is, by virtue of it being a standardized test, very standard, but it is probably new, you know, if you don't have any experience with the LSAT. And so, if you want to give yourself enough time to learn something new, you're gonna need a little bit of calendar time. And, uh, and, and I guess the best way that I could really articulate how strongly I feel about that is that, you know, at, at Velocity, we, we guarantee success if you spend at least 10 weeks working on it. So that to me is the, is the minimum. And then the maximum from my from my perspective, would be about four months. Now, there are people that probably do benefit from spending more time than that, but I think it's likely that on the whole, if you can set aside real study time during your day, you know, every day or 
five days a week, uh, that you'll probably start getting, uh, start hitting a point of diminishing returns at, at around that four month mark for most people. I hear you. Yeah. So I think that three to four months is a good benchmark. I'd say it's really the minimum I would recommend. In my experience, I find those who do best tend to spend five to six months to achieve their fullest potential. But five to six months as a timeline could actually translate into three to four months of really dedicated studying. A lot of times folks will dip their toes in the water a little bit and underestimate just how much of a beast this exam is. And so they tend to ramp it up as they get closer. One thing I really liked about the semester analogy is that I would treat it like a class in terms of blocking off time, in terms of making that dedicated investment where you're not like, I'll just throw everything at the wall for a month and see if I get there. Oh no, I'm not there. Let me throw another month into this and see what happens. Really be prepared for a slog, but also arm yourself with the best possible resources to help yourself get there so you're not wasting any time. And I'll tell tell folks, treat this at minimum like a six-credit class in college. And if you think about it, you should really treat it like much more than that because your LSAT score typically weighs a little bit more heavily in the admission process than your GPA. So why would you spend only one class's worth of investment in this when it outweighs all of college put together? That's right. That's right. And uh, for most people, it's you'd think of it like a, adding another course, college level course to your life, but also probably the most difficult course you'll take. I mean, you know, I mean, there are those of us studying astrophysics and they might be taking harder coursework, but for most people, this would be among the most difficult things you, you'd work on. For sure. Now, in terms of getting started, in terms of getting those resources, aside from getting your resources and my resources, of course, what resources should students use do you typically recommend? I mean, obviously, there's the prep test, right? Right. Yeah, the thing that's cool for, for people who don't know anything about um, getting ready for the LSAT, the thing that's cool about it and different from other tests is that the Law School Admissions Council, the authors of the test, have made, uh, well, there are almost nearly 100 um, previously administered LSATs that are available. And these are real tests that were actually administered that people took and you know used those scores to get into law school. And they are just like the test as it is currently administered. Um, there's, you know, sort of 35 tests ago, LSAC made that switch, you know, from having four reading passages to having three passages plus a set of two short passages. So that's a difference, you know. Um, and the test, like any kind of long-lived creation like you know your favorite television show or whatever evolves over time so if you looked at prep test one the first one that they published and prep test 87 which i think at at the time of this recording is the most recent one uh you know you'd probably be able to pick up some differences between them but i would say that as a rule of thumb any five consecutive tests are virtually indistinguishable from each other uh, so, <clears throat> you know, the, you have the benefit of being able to practice with the real test. 
And I think that's a really cool feature of the LSAT that isn't present in you know other standardized tests. So when you ask what you should prep with, you know, I think I think that's a great idea to you know to buy and use as many prep tests as possible. And you probably want a coach. You know? For sure. It's a lot to wade through. I mean, speaking earlier about the time it takes to get this exam, the fact that I also agree with you, it's like a foreign language. There's an element of pattern recognition in this process that's enormously useful. Like Dave, when you or I, we look at a new question, we're not really looking at a new question. It's the same old reasoning, just dressed up in a new way. That's right. And if you could work through all of those hundred old exams, we're nearly at that point now with a hundred of them, even if you studied half of them or a third of them, in enough detail, that could be enough to help you really see and pick up on virtually all the patterns that you could ever expect on test day. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I should be clear. I, I really agree with what you're saying and that, and that even half of them, I, okay, well, here's how I feel about it. When I put my course together, I started with prep test uh, 29. <clears throat> and the reason for that weird number is because LSAC, released a book of 10 tests, you know, that are from 29 to 38. Why did they pick those 10? I don't know. Do you know? Do you have any idea why those? I honestly have no idea. I think it's so inscrutable. It's hard to put a finger on it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really weird numbering system. I mean, and then later, so so the, the earliest book we use is 29 through 38. And then there's 42, prep tests 42 through 51, 52 through 61, 62, 71, 72, 81, and presumably in, in, in about a year and a half, they'll release 82 through 91. Now I can say the reason for the uh, 42 through 51, 52 through 61 and so on, uh, you know, I alluded to the, the switch from the four reading passages to the three plus two uh, with the comparative reading. And that happened in between prep test 51 and 52 in June of 2007. And so it made some sense that the next 10 tests were the, you know, that they released in a book were the 10 tests that all had uh, the comparative reading, the, that short AB passage set. Um, but that was neither, what was I talking about? Oh, yes. Uh, I was saying that uh, I go back as far as 29 just because that's in, contained in that book, but also because that, that came out, I think, in... Uh, either early 2000 or late 1999. And so going back nearly 20 years seems like enough prep material for, for just about anybody. Totally. Yeah, I think that you don't need to go through every single LSAT ever released. I mean, if you go, wait five, 10 years, you're going to have another couple dozen to work through. Yeah. Is that truly necessary? I don't think so. You still have more available than anybody in history. But as yeah. you said, Dave, given that it's evolved over time, there's the more recent ones are a little bit more relevant. And so you don't want to do the older ones at the expense of the newer ones. Yes. Yes. Very important. Yeah. If you, it, uh, I, don't, I don't think that anybody should probably do 87 prep tests. Um, and, and I don't think that anybody who wants to prepare using 50 tests should use one through 50. You should use, you know, 37 through 87. And uh, when did you take, well, let's see, you may not remember. 
I, I took the, I took my first LSAT in 2005. And so at that point, I mean, there were only like 35 prep tests in existence. And I think I only used about 20 of them to prepare. Yeah. Uh, I also actually started back in 2005 and funnily enough, and that was, I think the tests were in the forties back then. I mean, they were like in okay. the forties prep okay. test number 42 test number 41 right around there. All right. And so, you know, we couldn't possibly have studied with 90 tests. They didn't exist. And yet that did not keep us from getting a, on my first test, a 179 and on your first test, uh, whatever. I got 175. Yeah. But you yeah, know, it's, it's more than enough. It's more than enough to study yeah. those in depth. All right. Well, I think we emphasize the importance of the prep tests. Yeah. They're available on Amazon in books of 10 for about 20 bucks each, 20, 25 bucks. And it's well worth the investment. Totally. So let's knock out some of these other questions here. Preparing for a retake. You know, retaking has become more common than ever before mm -hmm. with the test being more frequent and with law schools no longer averaging multiple scores. And so I tell folks, if you think you can do better, and you have it in you to study for a retake, go for it. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I, I, from the beginning, looking forward, I want my students to prepare to take it once and be done with it forever. But, you know, here we are human beings and we make mistakes and we screw up. That is the human condition. And so if you, you know, if you do that, you take the test and you screw up, you just, you didn't study, enough or you got freaked out on test day or you know something happened beyond your control and you just did not perform to your potential then absolutely take the test again and the uh i don't <clears throat> i don't really make any distinction between preparing for the first test and preparing for any subsequent test uh i think in all phases it needs to look like a quest to understand the LSAT. And I think if you can approach the material with that mindset, it kind of unlocks the right way to attack your practice rather than just sitting down and answering a bunch of LSAT questions and then checking your answers, sit down and determine that you're going to learn a little bit more about how the LSAT works today. Yeah, I think that it can only benefit from more attention, more analysis. Maybe you want to look at what you did wrong the first time around. Maybe you want to go deeper in your analysis and review of questions. And the most common question I get about retakes is, I've already burned through those exams. They're useless to me. And I'll tell folks there's plenty of value in redoing those. I mean, if you were to look at them again now, would you get a perfect 180 on them? If not, there's probably something to be learned from giving those another look. That's right. Yeah, and I think about it like, um, you know, like learning any new skill. When you're learning to play the piano, you do not buy um, eight, 80 songs and then play each of them once and throw them away. You know, you buy the sheet music and you learn to play it and you play it and play it and play it until you can play it perfectly. And that's what you should do here. Uh, I mean, and, and the way you put it is really apt. I mean... If you can't get every single question right with total confidence, then you don't know all there is to know about that test. And I wouldn't say that a person has to, you know, 
know everything there is to know about every single test before taking the LSAT. But what they should do with that material is develop a strong base of understanding, you know, that, that is more than just, oh, I see why the answer was B. It should be, okay, I chose D because of things X and Y, but I see that that's wrong because the passage actually says things F and G, and answer choice B contains, you know, information F and G also, whatever, you know? So, and what I'm trying to convey, I think a little artlessly there, is that uh, there, the value comes from the deep exploration of what this question tells me about future questions. Agreed, yeah, I think you wanna look at how they made that question so difficult, specifically what were the ways in which they made it difficult? How do they ramp up the difficulty level? What tricks did they throw into it? And then which tricks did you personally fall for? Because you may not have fallen for all of them, only some of them. And then you wanna see where your misunderstandings came from, the stimulus, if it's logical reasoning, the question stem or the choices, and specifically what tempted you about the wrong answers and what discouraged you from the right answers. So Dave, I loved when you talked about like you thought it was saying CDE, but the choice said FG or something like that. And there are different pieces that you may have misinterpreted and you got to figure out what they were so you can avoid making those same mistakes again. Totally. So I think we covered the question of how to review LSAT questions. What about cancellations? LSAT score cancellations. Oh yeah. Um, so here's what I, here, here's what I want you to do. Uh, do not ever, do not ever, do not ever take any timed practice test and then check your results. Instead, every single practice test, and you could extend this, I'm talking generally about tests, practice tests, but you could extend this to, uh, practice sections. You know, anytime you do a single section, uh, at speed. But every single time before you look at the answers, try in your mind to work through the likely success that you had. Um, and obviously, you know, that's not a, a complete science, right? Um, if it, you know, if, if, we, if we could know with that much certainty which questions we were getting right and wrong, we would get them, I think we would choose to get them all right instead of getting any wrong. Um, but, but you can get better at, uh, knowing roughly how you did, you know, and what that should look like is something like you take a logical reasoning section or you take, let's, let's take a whole test. And the first section was logical reasoning. And, um, and if you do this consistently over time, you should get to a place where you can know pretty well, okay, there were 25 questions. Uh, there were there were two questions that I just guessed on, um, and there were like four or five questions that I found really difficult. Um, and then for the other sort of seventeen questions, I may have missed two. You know, of those seventeen, I I know myself now, and I know of the five questions that were hard. I missed three of them. Like, that's just what I, where I'm at right now. Uh, and then I guessed on two. So I'll say I won't count any luck. And I'll say I missed both of those. So on that 
first section, you know, I missed, I think that came out to seven questions. And then the second section of the test was games. And, you know, the first game I got totally no problem. Uh, the second game I got completely right, no problem. The third game I really struggled with. Uh, so I may have missed two questions in that game. The, the last game I was running a little short on time, so I may have missed two questions on that game. And then I know myself and I am prone to making some careless errors. So in those first two games where I, I didn't have any real problems with them, I know it's likely that I made one error. I just keep doing that. And you see how like this, this will only become sensible and informed and intelligent if you do it over and over and over over time. But you can say, yeah, based on past experience, I know I probably missed two in the game that I rushed on, probably missed two in the game that was hard, and probably missed one in the two games that were easy. So I missed five questions in that game section. And then you go through and, and do the same thing with the reading comprehension, the same thing with the other logical reasoning section. And if you do it consistently over and over after every practice test, and you do not ever take a practice test and then just check your answers, uh, then you will get pretty good at knowing how you did on the test. And so when the real thing comes and you sit down in that chair and you take your actual test in the testing center, um, you, will, you will be able to uh, you know, get a reasonably close assessment of your uh, performance on the test. And then you can make a more intelligent and more informed answer about canceling your score. Nice. I really like that framework. I think it, I like it because it trains you to better predict how you'll do on the test. And even if you don't cancel a low score, it's not a huge deal because law schools don't average them. They only take the highest. But this could help you avoid even walking into test day at all if you're not ready. Yeah. If you're taking, if you took your most recent five practice tests, you predicted they wouldn't go well, and then they didn't go well, then you know, you know what, maybe it's time to postpone that test. That's right. That's I also right. like it because it tells you, it, it shows you where your prediction may have some empty space between there and the actual. If there's a gap yeah. there and you're not predicting properly and you notice, hey, I'm prone to making careless mistakes at the beginning of logic games and... I wasn't aware of that previously. It could help you change your approach That's going right. forward. Yes. Absolutely. You can actually learn to spot those, those gaps that were previously blind to even you. That's right. Yep. Awesome. But I will tell folks typically don't cancel unless you have something hard you can really hold on to as a reason why it went terribly wrong. It's really common to walk out of the test with a vague sense of unease or feeling like things didn't go as well as they could have. But yeah. Plenty of people end up canceling great scores because there's that adrenaline, there's that pit in the stomach of fear that mm -hmm. this was the real thing. And you remember it with a certain color of emotion in it, I think. That's right. And you will never feel worse about your performance than in the moments right after the test when all you can think about right afterwards are the questions that you found hard. You know, I mean, it's, and it makes perfect sense. Why would you spend any brain power thinking about all the questions that you found easy and that you nailed and got right? You don't, you know, all you can think about is the, is the things that you struggled with. And that is a really negative headspace, you know, and, and Hey, maybe it's appropriate. You know, maybe you struggled with the whole test and that's a sign that you need to get back to work and do it again. 
but for most of us, you know, we will have performed at or near our peak if we've been, you know, prepping properly. And, and in those moments right after the test, we will think about all those places on the test where we struggled. And that's not a good uh, headspace for making any big decisions. Sure. No, it's a basic principle of psychology, I think, that you tend to feel a loss more than a gain. So those questions you lost, even if you only lost, let's say, 10 or 15, which would still end up with a pretty great score, you don't feel the 85 you got right. You feel all the misses or the potential misses. And one part of what goes into helping you avoid those and performing on test day as you want to and expect it is just what are your simulated practice tests like in the lead up to game day? So let me ask you, Dave, what do you typically recommend to students as far as prepping for that final week in terms of simulating test day conditions? So um, I recommend that you do at least um, a couple of like full dress rehearsal uh, run-throughs. And, um, and actually, somebody once asked me what I meant by dress rehearsal. And I thought that was a like a universal phrase, and I guess it's not. Um, you know, and a dress rehearsal is before a, a play. You know, you you know everybody rehearses all the time, and then and then in the week or two leading up to the actual presentation of the play, all the actors get together in their costumes with the makeup on, and they run the whole play from start to finish. And that I think is what you should do when preparing for the LSAT. Um, and the way that I would run that dress rehearsal uh, is by going to the library, I think, the, and, and not, not a quiet study room in the library. Instead, the, uh, the open, the open a public area of the library, because that is a place that will be quiet, but it won't be silent. Like a Starbucks is not a good place to try to do a dress rehearsal. There's too much distraction going on. Um, but the library is, is a pretty quiet place. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't, it isn't too quiet. You know, this perfect silence of your, of your lonely room is also not a great dress rehearsal space because you're going to be at a testing center and, you know, there may be cars that are loud in the parking lot outside there, you know, maybe doors opening and closing in other rooms. You know, there may be other test takers sniffling, um, you know, Mr. Jimmy legs, as you work, you know, uh, and so you have to be able to work through some distractions, you know, but you don't want to be competing against the full on distractions of, uh, you know, a busy Starbucks during the holiday season. So I recommend the library and, and that you take it just the way it's going to go on test day, which means that you, you know, you sit down, you don't, you don't leave. If you do get up to go to the restroom, you keep the clock running, you know, as will happen on test day. If you have to go to the restroom or something, you make yourself take the break after section three. Um, and uh, let's see, I'm trying to think. I don't think there's anything I left out, but you know, the, the whole idea is to simulate test day as best you can. And, uh, and I think, the, I think the the quiet and yet not silent public library is probably the best place. I what agree. Think? I think the library is a, is a good middle ground because you don't want total sterility, total quiet. And that's where people tend to do most of their studying yeah. or they'll use yeah. earplugs when earplugs aren't allowed on test day. 
Right. Than the polar opposite of, of a, a busy Starbucks that's bustling in a, a busy downtown area. You know, test day is not going to be that bad, most likely. Right. So right. the public space is a good, happy medium. There's major cities, like I'm in New York, there's a lot of open public spaces that are a bit open, like public atriums. And I, I find, mm -hmm. or atria, and I find those are typically pretty good places to go that are good yeah. in between. But yeah, the library is a great spot too. And I'll, I'll recommend at least five to 10 of these run-throughs or dress rehearsals, as you call them, just so that test day itself is like another practice test. You know, the one that you're taking will often be released. Most of them, some aren't released, but eventually all of them are, I think. And yours will be a numbered exam in the future, just like all the ones you've studied up to this point. And so everything you can do to simulate that is, is to your benefit. Um, <clears throat> sorry, that, that ding was my email and I realized I didn't have it closed. Um, all good. All good. No worries. Thanks. All right. What's next? So I think we pretty much ran the gamut of the questions here, Dave. This was, this was a pleasure oh. connecting with you on this. This was Yeah. Good. Well, okay. I have one bit of parting advice and, and it kind of as a segue out of what we were just talking about. Um, because, you know, test day, we can do our best to simulate conditions, and yet there's nothing quite like that experience of test day, and it can be nerve-wracking. And so one other thing that I'll suggest is that you get for yourself a fight song. Pick some song that makes you want to, you know, punch the world in the throat, and play that song every before you take every one of your dress rehearsal practice tests. So you feel amped and you feel good and you feel ready and then play that song on repeat on your way to your testing center on test day. So when you get there, instead of feeling frightened and small and afraid, you feel like a damn animal ready to eat some LSAT. Love it, great tip. Yeah, motivational songs, videos, playlists can be enormously useful. But Dave, what's your, what's your fight song? Um, no Church in the Wild. Nice. <clears throat> Nice. and Kanye before Kanye went off the rails <laughs> I like uh, I have the tiger and I'm always picturing the Rocky montage while I've got that oh going. hell yeah <laughs> yeah awesome for sure I'll leave one piece of parting advice as well around this test day which is the other side of performing well which is really nerves and anxiety doing whatever you can to mitigate those and so definitely the motivation pumping yourself up is really useful another thing I'll recommend for that is just thinking to yourself that while the LSAT as a whole is incredibly important. No one particular test administration will make or break you. Because as we said, you can always retake. That's right. That's right. All right, That's Dave, well, it, was, it was awesome. Great connecting with you. Let's just share the best way for folks to get in touch with us. So you're over at Velocity LSAT, right? Yeah. So you can you know, reach me at the website, velocitylsat.com. There's a contact section. My email address is dave at velocitylsat.com. Awesome. And again, Steve Schwartz, I run the LSAT blog. I also host the LSAT Unplugged YouTube channel and podcast, so you can find me there. It's great talking to you, Steve. Take care. Same, Dave. Be well.